If you're looking for fun, powerful, and thematically appropriate builds for your companions in Baldur's Gate 3, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to D4. Hi everybody, so here at D4, each week we take a deep dive into character builds for our favorite role-playing games. I like to crunch numbers about them and theorycraft about them, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a particular character, but to explore one potential way to build something that you're thinking about playing with the hopes of creating a character that's both really fun, but also really powerful to play. So if you enjoy creating characters for role-playing games almost as much as you enjoy playing the game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on how to build something that you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm so glad you're here, so thanks for watching. My name's Colby. Really quick, if you'd be interested in getting a written step-by-step -step guide to the builds that I do today, all the builds that I do on this channel, I'd appreciate it if you'd consider joining as a member. There's a little button down there. For $2 a month, you get access to the library of write-ups that I make for each one of these builds so that you don't have to go back and rewatch the video or take notes, and it's just a nice way to support the channel and help me create more and better content. So humongous shout out and thank you to all of my channel members. You guys are amazing, and everybody else, you guys are amazing to watching, liking, subscribing, commenting, clicking on the notifications bell. These are also great ways to support the channel so you don't have to become a member. Just being here and doing these things is also super supportive, so thank you. All right, today we are doing part two of my optimized build for each companion in Baldur's Gate 3 series. If you missed part one, it's right up here. So feel free to go and check that out. That said, you don't have to watch that first. Maybe just if you're looking for builds for Shadowheart Heart, Carlac, and Will, which are the ones that we covered in that video. I explain there that my goal with these videos is to create not just a powerful build for each companion using like their starting class as their main class, but also to try to do something that feels thematically appropriate for the character as well. Something that doesn't diverge too far from like who they are, right? Their story, their personality. So no light cleric for Shadowheart kind of thing, at least not at first. As a reminder, since we're talking a little bit about personality and story, if I ever start to feel like I'm going to discuss something that might even be considered a mild spoiler for the game, I'll switch myself to black and white like this and put the word spoiler in floating text like this so you can know when to mute and unmute. Up today, we've got Gale, Lazel, and finally, Asterion. Ready to go? All right, Baldur's Gate 3, episode number six, Optimizing the Companions, part two. But before we jump into the builds this week, I'm super excited to tell you guys more about one of my favorite sponsors of all time, Hit Point Press, and their amazing animated decks of many things, illusions, conditions, spells, and tarot cards. So, I have shown you guys some of these cards before, but in case you missed it, Hitpoint Press has created these really incredible decks that lets your DM hand cards out to players when, say, they suffer a condition to remind them that they are incapacitated, for example. Or that players can pull out when they cast an illusion, let's say. Maybe they make the illusion a fire giant, right? And so this will give a nice, like, visual animated representation of what that illusion might look like. For 
that matter, in-game you might get an actual deck of many things. And now, when you use it, you can just literally draw from an actual deck of cards, right? Instead of rolling the dice, and then you get an animated representation of what you draw to further immerse everyone at your table in the experience. But Hit Point Press has more decks than that even. Decks of many monsters, the deck of many NPCs, the deck of many weapons, and each card is beautifully illustrated and animated. I love them. Perhaps most interesting of all, however, is the Fable Maker's animated tarot deck. If you're into tarot and you want to incorporate it into your D&D game, this is the greatest thing ever. But it is more than just a tarot deck. It's also a powerful tool that you can use at your table. You could let this deck help you by drawing a random card from it and thus deciding how your character might react if the quest NPC gets swallowed by a big bad, or to help you drum up a fantastic backstory for your character on the fly and so much more. Along with the deck, they have the animated tarot guidebook. It's 280 pages long, and it gives you not only ideas on how to use your tarot deck in your campaigns, with tools for both players and GMs alike, but even gives you a really great primer on the practice of tarot in general, which was actually really interesting for me. So do yourself a favor and go check out these amazing decks by Hitpoint Press. I would appreciate it if you would use the link that I'm going to put in the video description when you do so, so that they know I sent you. But also, between now and October 31st, Halloween, if you use the code D4HPP at checkout when you're purchasing the tarot box set or any animated spell bundle, you'll save 10 bucks. Nice. So huge thanks to Hitpoint Press. Love you guys. Let's jump into the builds. Okay. Today we are going to start with Gale, not only because he is a charming sweetheart, who really has a hard time hearing thanks but no thanks when it comes to romance, by the way, <laughs> or is that just me? But also because, well, he's kind of the easiest and most straightforward of the three, I think, today. I guess I would actually offer three solid options for a thematically appropriate, mostly wizard Gale. The first two I've already done. The wizard tank build from my BG3 builds number four video right there. I think that build is maybe the one that's the most fun to play as a mostly wizard character, but it might feel a wee bit off for him conceptually. If you recall, I wanted to start that build with a single level of war cleric for heavy armor proficiency, among other things. and. I mean, when we first meet Gale, he's not in plate mail, right? He's absolutely a robe-wearing, staff-wielding, stand-in-the-back-and-sling-spells kind of wizard, I think. At least that's the vibe I get. And his demeanor isn't exactly an in-your-face, put-me-in-the-front-lines-and-challenge-my-enemies-to-attack-me kind of demeanor. So, sure, maybe War Cleric is a bit off for Gale. But what if we went with, like... Tempest Cleric. That's pretty magic and blaster focused and would let us keep our heavy armor proficiency. Or maybe, better yet, knowledge. Because, minor spoilers, I think a knowledge cleric would absolutely be one who would potentially be a worshipper of Mistra. And arguably, nobody worships Mistra and is more devoted to her than Gale, right? So, if you wanted to go that route, maybe you start off with your first two levels of wizard, then pick up a level of cleric for some medium armor proficiency at least, if not heavy. That's going to reduce our survivability somewhat if we went knowledge cleric. But if you saw in that build, you'll recall that survivability was almost too good on that character, and we kind of wanted to reduce our armor class so that we could get hit more often. Maybe we'd be better off with medium armor, and then instead of using a martial weapon, we just used Shocking Grasp when we were in melee, or a save-based spell for damage, right? That feels to me like a great way to keep Gale in line with, like, 
his concept and who he is at his core, while still being able to enjoy an incredibly fun and powerful wizard build that can be both a tank and a stellar controller on the battlefield. Option number two was the Control Freak that was from uh, the BG3 builds number three video, I believe. It's mostly an enchanter wizard, and it would work great for Gale, I think, without really needing to change much of anything to still fit with his feel thematically. So if you wanted to focus on control, that would be a great option. But if you weren't interested in going either of those routes with Gale, and you wanted to make him more of a traditional backline caster, then you should. Especially, I think, if you don't really have anyone else in your party that's focused on being an AoE uh, area of effect damage dealer. Because here's the thing about D&D, and especially, I think, about Baldur's Gate. You really want to have at least one person in your party who can be an AoE specialist. There is a lot of combat in BG3, happily, and there are a ton of fights where your party is heavily outnumbered by the enemy. I'd maybe say that it's more often that way than not. A lot of the time, those enemies can be relatively weak, but the challenge is in the action economy battle, right? Where they just have so many more turns than you. For that reason, having at least one party member who specializes in doing damage to multiple enemies at a time is just sound tactics, I think. And to that end, my recommendation for Gale, if you don't want to go wizard tank or control freak, would honestly just be to stick with evocation for most, if not all, of his career. There's a reason that, outside of Bladesingers, anyway, mostly wizard builds are among the least frequent builds that I do on my channel for D&D characters. It's because there's not a lot of puzzle to put together with wizards. It's not that they aren't really powerful and fun to play. It's that it's not particularly difficult or challenging or fun to figure out how to build a good wizard. It's like, step one, be a wizard. Step two, hmm? Step three, profit. <laughs> because yes, not only is it important to have a solid AoE damage dealer in your party, but wizards notoriously have the biggest and best spell list in the game. And having access to all of those spells means that you kind of have a solution for every problem. Lots of enemies, fireball or lightning bolt, or cloud kill, or chain lightning, etc. Still lots of enemies? Slow or fear half of them, or put half of them behind a wall of stone, etc. Hard to reach area? Fly. Dimension door. Powerful enemy spellcasters? Counterspell. Wizards are just infinitely versatile and powerful thanks to that big, huge, amazing spell list. The only deviation I would consider from just going straight wizard all the way in this instance then is going to be to take two levels of fighter so that you can get constitution saving throw proficiency, armor proficiency, and best of all, action surge. Because being able to get two full actions once per short rest is just really, really strong. It could mean, say, two fireballs on your turn, or a big control spell and a fireball, or a big buff spell and a control spell. You get the idea. And that just might outweigh slowing down your spell progression enough to justify the fighter detour. Of course, on the other hand, you might just opt instead to use haste for your concentration, cast it on yourself, and thereafter enjoy the ability to cast two spells on every single turn instead of just once per short rest with action surge, right? Honestly though, I think that might be overkill on a wizard. If you're using two spell slots every single turn, then you're gonna burn through your spell slots way too quickly. And if you're instead hasting yourself and then casting like a spell slotted spell and then using that second action for like a firebolt or something, you're better off putting haste on your strongest melee damage dealer or maybe your Eldritch Blast focused Warlock. So, okay, that was a long preamble, I get it. This is quickly how I would do a mostly wizard blaster caster gale. Level one, starting class wizard, of course. 
for ability scores. I would respec him once I found Withers just to get those ability scores in the right place. So we want a 16 intelligence, a 16 constitution, and a 14 dexterity. For equipment, we're gonna be just equipping the best robes and the staffs that we can find for now anyway. And then wizards at level one get arcane recovery, letting us recover some spell slots. And then we get spells. There's lots of great spells to choose from. There are every single time we get new spells. Firebolt or Ray of Frost for range damage. Mage Hand is useful both to soak up enemy damage and to shove bad guys around in Baldur's Gate anyways. Shocking Grasp or Poison Spray, I think, for when we're in melee and we don't want to suffer the disadvantage to hit penalty with our ranged cantrips. And maybe even Acid Splash if you want to do a little damage to two enemies with a cantrip. That's a lot of cantrips, I know. There's lots of good ones. For first level spells, too many to choose from. Burning Hands is a decent little AoE damage dealer. Shield is one of the best defensive spells in game. Mage Armor is worth taking early on anyway for an armor class bump until we get armor proficiency at least. Grease is a great control spell in this game. It slows and potentially knocks enemies prone, but then it can also be lit on fire for some area damage or turned into a sheet of ice for a more permanent snare field. Tasha's Hideous Laughter is fantastic for single target control. And finally, Magic Missile is just a nice kind of, I need to ensure that this enemy or maybe multiple enemies take at least a little bit of damage here. At level two, wizards get their subclass. And I think I really would just stick with evocation personally, because I like to blow stuff up. And evocation lets us do that better than any other subclass, even keeping our allies safe from our area of effect damage spells for the most part. And that usually means we can hit more enemies with them. That said, I think divination is a very worthy alternate to consider here, primarily because of their portent feature, which they would get right here at level two. This tells us that after each long rest, the game rolls two d20s for you, and whatever number they land on, those are your portent dice for the day that you can then use to substitute for any attack roll or any saving throw that happens within 60 feet of you. This can mean helping an ally make an important save or land an important attack if the portent number is high, or make an enemy miss an important attack, especially a critical hit, or an important save, like say against your control spell, if the portent die roll is low. It's a super powerful ability, and if you feel comfortable with your ability to do AoE damage without hurting your allies too much, or you just don't care if you hurt them, I guess, then that is the route I would go. And I don't think doing so would feel out of place for Gale at all thematically. I'll assume that we went evocation though, and that means at this level we get sculpt spells. This ensures that our allies take no damage from our evocation spells like burning hands, fireball, lightning bolt, etc. At level three, we get second level spells, and I'm gonna want Misty Step for teleportation, so useful, especially in BG3 with Larian enjoying to play around with the verticality on the battlefield like they do. Cloud of Daggers gives some really nice guaranteed small area of effect damage that will affect enemies at least twice if you cast it on them, right? Once on your turn, once on theirs. And of course, then you can shove enemies into it, and forced enemy movement is pretty prevalent in this game. Web is a great multi-target area control spell, and Hold Person is a fantastic potential single target paralyzer. At level four, we get our first feat, and we are no question bumping intelligence here to make our spells hit more regularly and be harder to resist. At level five, we get third level spells, and Oh, there are so many good ones that I want. Third level spells are among my favorite in-game. I'm almost assuredly grabbing Fireball, though 
There is an argument to be made for taking Lightning Bolt instead. I don't think at this level we want to prepare both, we just don't have room. But with the reduced area of Fireball in BG3 compared to D&D, it might really be easier to get more enemies in a long line with Lightning Bolt than in a small sphere with Fireball. Play around with it and decide for yourself. But then, I feel like you almost have to take haste and use it for your concentration. With as strong as that spell is in this game, giving the person that you cast it on two full actions every single turn. But slow is worth considering as well since it's such a great debuff. It really might do more to help your party win a combat encounter than putting haste on one target. It reduces the move speed, armor class, and ability to take both an action and a bonus action every turn on up to six enemies. That's just so good. Plus, potions of speed exist in this game to replicate that haste spell if you really want. So yeah, depending on the fight, I would probably use one or the other for concentration, but having fear in our back pocket for some really strong multi-target hard control is also great. Counterspell is really strong against enemy mages. It's gonna be hard to pick from so many great options. But at level six, yeah, now that we've got third level spells, I think I'm gonna take a couple of fighter levels. And at this point, honestly, I would respec to be a fighter at first level than a wizard the rest of the way. We just get so much for doing this. The power of heavy armor proficiency and constitution saving throw proficiency just can't be overstated really on a caster who cares so much about, well, not dying and not losing concentration. And we only get both of those things if we start as a fighter one. Now, you might think that fighter levels are gonna kind of go against Gale thematically. Gale in plate armor with a shield? I don't know. We're several levels in here. I don't know why he can't have learned from like Lazelle how to use armor and benefit from a shield. There's surely plenty of downtime in camp, right? If you'd rather not go this route, that's fine. But it doesn't feel too jarring to me. As a fighter one then, we get second wind so that we can heal ourselves once per short rest for a d10 plus our fighter level. And then we get a fighting style and I would pick defense here. We don't care too much about weapons. We're not here to protect our allies so much outside of maybe by controlling our enemies. So take defense, raise your AC by one. At level seven though, we would be a fighter two and that means yes, we get action surge so that you can just really get the odds of the fight going in your favor early on by throwing out a couple of powerful spells to start the encounter off. Or, of course, waiting a round or two until the enemies have bunched up nicely around your barbarian and then just double fireball the whole pack. But with Action Surge under our belt, yeah, at level eight, I'm going back to wizard so we'd be a wizard six. This means that as an evocation wizard, we get potent cantrip. And this tells us that when a creature succeeds on their saving throw against one of our cantrips only, it still takes half damage on it. This might not seem like a big deal, but Without going into the details or the math too much, it's actually huge. Guaranteed damage is always a great thing, and it takes a cantrip like Acid Splash or Poison Spray from pretty meh to pretty decent. It would be even better if Toll the Dead existed in this game. but. I'll take what I can get. From this point on in the build then, I'm just gonna say stick with wizard the rest of the way. It lets us get fourth and fifth level spells, cap our intelligence with our next feat, and even get the pretty nice evocation level 10 like capstone feature, empowered evocation, which will add our intelligence modifier to any evocation spell in damage 
which is actually, again, pretty nice. With a 20 intelligence, it's like adding a d10 of damage on top of whatever damage the spell already does, right? And yeah, if it's a spell that does AoE damage to multiple enemies, every enemy that gets hit by it is going to take that extra damage. One drawback here, of course, is that with those two levels of fighter, we miss out on sixth level spells. So sure, feel free to respec once you get to level 12 to drop one fighter level, keep that first one for defensive purposes, and then go wizard 11 if you really want to. We're giving up action surge, sure, but those six level spells are arguably worth it. Okay, that's it for Gale. On to our favorite prickly githyanki, Lazel. I'm again actually going to lay out three options for Lazel here, and I think all of them would be true to her character and her mostly fighter self. First up and easiest, just stay fighter most of the way with her. Battlemaster is great. Make sure you grab trip attack for one of the maneuvers. Get great weapon master and polearm master, assuming they fix the feet so that the bonus action attack it gives you with the blunt end of your polearm actually adds damage from other sources like great weapon master. And then yeah, you just open up on an enemy with trip attack to knock them prone so that you have advantage on subsequent attacks. After fighter five and extra attack, I'd probably take at least two levels of paladin on her to get Divine Smite so that you can pile on big burst damage once in a while against a prone enemy especially. And I do think a pally dip totally works on Lazelle. She is a bit of a religious zealot for Vlacketh, after all. I'd also, frankly, probably pick up two levels of Barbarian as well so that I can get not just Rage, but more importantly, Reckless Attack, and now I have easy advantage on all of my attacks. That said, once I hit level 11, I'd just respec back to Straight Fighter fighters get a third attack with each attack action at level 11 and that's unique to all classes and it just is really really strong especially if you can get hasted use action surge and you're doing a plus 10 damage on every one of your attacks right that's the wrecking ball version of lazelle alternatively you could build her like i did my non-bear tank build from that second uh, bg3 video i'd tweak it slightly there to do more fighter levels than paladin levels, but otherwise I think it would work great and make her there in your party more to take a hit and keep enemies focused on her, protecting you and your other allies instead of just dealing a ton of damage. But you know what? I think there's a third option that might be my favorite of all for Lazelle, and it's more of a battlefield commander character. I've done a few support characters for BG3 on this channel so far, a healer, a controller, but they've always been spell casters. What if we made Lazelle like a martial support character, a strong leader in the fight, rallying her allies, whipping them into shape, commanding her platoon strategically? I love the concept, and I think it could work for her thematically. Sure, at first especially, she might be a bit gruff. Charismatic might not be the first word that comes to mind when you think about her personality, but being a good leader in the heat of a battle doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be likable, right? Lazelle is more of like an in-your-face drill sergeant kind of leader. You better do what I tell you, grunt, or there will be hell to pay! Kind of vibe. And in that light, yeah, I think the idea of making her more of a martial support character so that your own PC, your Tav, can be more the star of the show in combat, which, let's be honest, is probably what most of us want anyways, right? We can't have Lazelle killing everybody and hogging the spotlight. Anyways, under that paradigm, this is how I'd build her. Level one, starting class, fighter. Ability scores, we're gonna respect to a 16 strength, a 16 charisma, and a 14 constitution. I think that's fairly self-explanatory, except maybe the charisma, I'll explain about that later. For equipment, 
Again, I'm not thinking of Lazelle here as a big damage dealer, but more of a support. Now, that might mean buffing or enabling allies, but it also might mean protecting them, being a bit of a tank. So I'm not as concerned about her damage here as I am about her ability to get into the middle of a fight and take a beating, sometimes taking a beating for her allies. So yes, I want heavy armor, I want a shield, and a favorite DA weapon. We're going sword and board. As a fighter one then, Lazelle would get second wind, yes, letting her heal for a little bit once per short rest, and then a fighting style. And so yeah, along the lines of being a protector support, I think protection is a really great choice for her fighting style here. It lets her use her reaction to impose disadvantage on an attack against one of her allies if she's within five feet of them. It's a nice way to help keep them safe, even if she acts like she's doing it begrudgingly. That said, I do hope to be using my reaction semi-frequently here, potentially anyway, for opportunity attacks. So you might want to spec out of protection into probably defense or maybe dueling if you find that you have too many demands on your reaction. At level two, we get action surge. It's not going to do a ton for our damage with this build, but it's still going to be useful in pretty much every fight, regardless. At level 3, fighters get their subclass, and I say we just keep her with her default here, Battlemaster. It is such a great and useful subclass. Not only offensively, there are a ton of utility and support-focused maneuvers that you can use with Battlemaster, and those are the ones that we're going to be using for Lazel. So we get to choose three maneuvers, and then we get four superiority dice, which are D8s, to spend on those maneuvers every short rest, meaning every fight for most of us, or nearly so. And the problem really is there are too many good maneuvers to choose from, for our purposes especially. Here are my favorites. Commander Strike lets you give up one of your own attacks to allow an ally to use their reaction to immediately make an attack. This is a great option for your heaviest hitter, and keep in mind, since this is happening on your turn, if you use this on a rogue ally, Asterian, let's say, they should be able to apply sneak attack for a second time in the same round for that reaction attack, right? So that's gonna do a lot more damage than Lazel would be doing. It's worth giving up one of your own attacks for it. Distracting Strike gives your allies advantage on their next attack against the target for a turn. Nice way to ensure everyone else is hitting them. Goading Attack is one of the only taunt-like features in the game, giving the enemy that you hit with it a debuff so that they have disadvantage if they attack anyone else but you for a turn. That's gonna help keep your allies safe. There's Maneuvering Attack, which lets you make an attack against an enemy for a bit of extra damage, but then lets you give an ally half of their move speed, which they can then use to move immediately. And that movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. So you can be like directing traffic on the battlefield, right? Either getting your squishy ally to safety or moving your melee ally into position for a continued offensive. And then finally there's Rally. This just straight up gives an ally eight temporary hit points, helping them stay in the fight a little bit longer. I think the three I would take here would be Commander Strike, Maneuvering Attack, and Goading Attack, personally. But feel free to go another route if you feel strongly. At level four, we get our first feat. And there aren't a lot of great like support-focused feats in Baldur's Gate, unfortunately. While you could definitely increase strength to make sure that your attacks and maneuvers succeeded, or increase your survivability via increasing your constitution, or maybe taking heavy armor master, maybe even shield master, I think the first thing that I would do for this Lazel build would be to take Sentinel. It is a really fantastic feat. First off, when an enemy near you attacks an ally, 
instead of you. You can use your reaction to make an attack against them. It's sort of a nice way of punishing them for attacking someone other than you. Better yet, the feat tells us that we have advantage on opportunity attacks, and when we successfully land one, it reduces the enemy's move speed to zero. That's another great way to keep your enemies from leaving your side and chasing after your squishier companions, right? It's a pretty great support martial focused feat. At level 5, we get extra attack for a little more damage and more chances to get our maneuver to land. But then also, yes, if we're using Commander's Strike, now we could make an attack ourselves and then give that second attack to our harder-hitting ally. So that's nice. At level 6, fighters, unique among all classes, get another feat. And that is just so wonderful. I'm kind of of two minds here. On the one hand, again, I really want to bump strength. On the other, if you took Sentinel last time, Polearm Master just looks really juicy. It tells us that when we're using a polearm, we can make a bonus action attack with the blunt end of the weapon. I've already talked about this, right? So that's a little extra damage, sure. But more importantly for this build, when an enemy leaves our reach or first enters our reach and we have a polearm equipped, then we can make an opportunity attack against them. And yeah, we've got a 10 foot reach with a glaive or a halberd anyway. And so with this feat and sentinel, anyone who tries to leave our side or even just skirt around us is going to be stopped dead in their tracks now. And that's just a fantastic interaction that I really love on this character especially. At level seven, I see this version of Lazel going one of two ways. You could go Barbarian. It doesn't feel too off for Lazel, I don't think. She's just giving into that anger that's always just simmering right under the surface anyways, right? You would get damage resistance via Rage, plus a little more damage. Reckless Attack to make up for our rather lackluster hit chance if we haven't been bumping our strength. And then as a subclass, you could go Wild Heart Barbarian and then choose the Wolf Heart option. This gives other melee allies advantage on attacks against enemies within seven feet of us. And so depending on your team's makeup, that could be huge and would be a nice way to augment what your team is doing. That said, I think I prefer to go a route that feels a little more leadery and a little less ragey. Bard. Say what? Bard? Lazel? Now, hear me out. Bards don't necessarily have to be like wafy dandelions who seduce everything and worry about keeping their loot from getting smashed. How about a scald, a warrior who tramps into battle, blowing their warhorn and bragging about the deeds of their ancestors to inspire their allies and then mocking or threatening their foes with impending doom? That feels pretty lazelish to me and is definitely one interpretation of a bard that we could make work here, I think. So that's the route that I'm going. That means we get bardic inspiration first off, which three times per long rest lets us use our bonus action to give our ally a d6 that they can add in the next 10 minutes to an ability check, attack roll, or saving throw of their choice, further enhancing the way that we are making everyone around us more effective and helping to keep them safe. Bards also get spells here, of course, and now this might start to feel like we're getting further away from what Lazelle is supposed to feel like, but I don't know, she is Githyanki. She automatically comes with a few spells via Githyanki psionics, so it's not a huge stretch here to let her expand her powers as she levels up, I don't think. But no worries, if you're someone who kind of balks at giving Lazelle a bunch of spells, just focus on stuff that's thematically appropriate. Fairy Fire is a great spell to give advantage to your allies against enemies who fail their save against it, sure, but maybe that feels a little too woo-woo glittery for our Scald of a Battlefield Commander. 
Instead, go with vicious mockery to shout insults at your foes and make them miss more often. Or heroism to bolster the resolve of an ally giving them temporary hit points every round. I would take Healing Word as well for the sheer power of it, but feel free to flavor it in your mind if you need to, like you're conducting battlefield triage support, right? At level eight, we'd be a Bard two, and that means we get Song of Rest. This lets us give everyone an extra short rest once per day. Every good leader knows when to give their troops a breather, after all. And then we get Jack of All Trades to make us a bit of an expert in every field of study, letting us add half our proficiency bonus to skill checks that we are not otherwise proficient in. At level nine, we get Bard three, and this gives us expertise, letting us double our proficiency bonus in two skills. I'd probably go perception and athletics for Lazelle personally, but pick your favorites. But then we get our bard college, our subclass, and we are totally going with Valor Bard here, no question. Valor Bards get combat inspiration, and this just gives our allies a couple more ways to use the inspiration that we give them. Now they can also add that d6 to their damage. It's not a great idea unless the enemy is like this close to dying and you think you need that extra little bit to push them over the edge. But much better is that they can also now add that d6 to their armor class against an attack, which is going to do great things to help keep them safe. At Bard 3, we also get second level spells and there are a lot of great options, but not a ton of them feel super battlefield commandery to me though. Maybe Calm Emotions though, that doesn't feel super Lazelle-like. It definitely could have a, you better put that weapon down before you do something you regret kind of feel to it. Enhance ability could be a useful buff as you're shouting encouragement to your allies. Go ahead and pick your favorites here. From this point on in the build, I'd probably keep going bard until bard five. That would get us a feat, which I would probably use to bump strength if I hadn't yet. It would get us third level spells and like fear especially doesn't feel too far-fetched of a spell to be using here, scaring the bejeebies out of your enemies with your battle cry. But then best of all, Bard 5 would really increase our Bardic Inspiration, right? It would get us four per rest instead of three. It would raise the die for those inspirations to a D8 from a D6, and then best of all, would let us get those inspirations back on a short rest. At that point, I would finish the build with Fighter 7 so that we could get another superiority die per short rest, giving us five of those now, and then letting us learn two more maneuvers as well. And this would mean that we would have five superiority dice and four inspirations every single short rest. So just about every fight, you're gonna be hard pressed to even use all of those every single encounter. We will be bolstering our allies, protecting them, inspiring them, directing them, and encouraging them, all while demoralizing our foes, just like the best battlefield commanders always do. All right, finally, for today, the one most of you have been waiting for, I'm sure, our favorite trampy vamp, Asterion. I think to really lean into everything that is Asterion, we've got to keep those rogue levels, sure, but we've got to add some Gloomstalker Ranger. It's just too good to pass up. He's a vampire. What does he do if not stalk in the gloom? It almost makes more sense to have him as a Gloomstalker than it does to have him as a rogue, I think. And actually, I feel so strongly about this that I think it's the one time I'm just gonna break my own rule here that I set for myself at the beginning of last video, where I said I'm never gonna have more levels in any other class than I do in their starting class. And yeah, I think we make Asterion mostly a Gloomstalker, at least up until mid-game. So 
here's how I would build him. At level one, he starts off as a rogue, yes, and I would keep him at rogue one. You get more skill proficiencies that way when you start as rogue, and Asterion will be really good at roguing, even if he's mostly a ranger for a while. For ability scores, I'm definitely respecting those to be a 16 dexterity, a 16 constitution, and a 14 wisdom, at least for now. And people ask why I go with my tertiary skill as wisdom when I maybe don't necessarily need it for the character, and it's because perceptions based on wisdom and wisdom saving throws tend to be a lot more important than, say, intelligence or charisma. So that's the main reason. But also, ranger spells benefit from wisdom too. So as for equipment, we want the best armor that we can get and two short swords or scimitars. We are going to be dual wielding on Asterion, meaning that we'll want to have two weapons that have both the light and finesse properties so that we can use our dexterity modifier for our attacks, but the build will be a fair bit different than the blender dual wielder build that I did back for Baldur's Gate builds episode 2. Now, at level 1 rogues get expertise, so yeah, we can double our proficiency bonus for two of our skills. I always like to do perception and sleight of hand on my rogues to make us better at both seeing traps and hidden doors and then disarming those traps or picking those locks. And then we get sneak attack, which tells us that if we hit an enemy with a finesse or ranged weapon and we have advantage on the attack or they're standing next to one of our allies, we can add a d6 of damage once on a turn. And not necessarily just on our turn, on a turn. So yes, if we're making attacks with our reaction on somebody else's turn, sneak attack should still be able to be applied. But you might have to toggle it on in that case. But then, yeah, right at level two, I would start taking ranger levels here so that we can get to extra attack and gloomstalker goodness as soon as possible. At ranger one, we get favored enemy and natural explorer. And these basically give us like some additional skill proficiencies and or a spell and or resistance to an elemental damage type. I'm just gonna say pick your favorite for both of these features, though bounty hunter and beast tamer might be my favorite. The latter gives you fine familiar, man. If only one of the familiar options were a bat. Anyway, at level three, we would be a ranger two, and that means first up we get a fighting style, and we're definitely taking two weapon fighting. It tells us that when we are two weapon fighting, then we get to add our ability modifier to the damage of our offhand attack, which we otherwise don't get to do when two weapon fighting. It's a decent little damage bump. We also get ranger spells here at this level, and I'd grab Hunter's Mark, though it does require a bonus action to cast and then to transfer once our initial target's dead, and that's kind of a bummer. It would keep us from making that offhand attack, right? But there will be times when the extra d6 of damage per attack that it grants us will be worth spending the bonus action to apply it, especially once we get extra attack and like if we were hasted, for example. I'd probably just grab Cure Wounds here as a spell as well for an emergency heal, and then Long Strider to bump move speed by 10 feet if no one else in your party has it anyways. Remember, this is a ritual spell and it lasts all day, meaning you could cast it on everyone in your party at the beginning of the day and it wouldn't take up any spell slots. At level four, we would be a ranger three and that means we get our ranger subclass and yes, we're going gloomstalker. That means we get a whole host of arguably overpowered goodies. First up, superior dark vision. This lets us see in the dark up to 80 feet away or 24 meters so far, and then Dread Ambusher. This gives us a plus three to our initiative rolls. It increases our move speed by 10 feet on the first round of combat and lets us make one additional attack that round that does an extra D8 of damage if it hits. So nice. We also get Umbral Shroud. This lets us use an action to go invisible once per short rest 
for 10 minutes. No concentration required, but it does break if we do basically anything. So yeah, this is much weaker than, than Umbral Sight, as it called in D&D. That's okay, that's overpowered anyways. Also, we get the Disguise Self spell for free here, okay. And we get the ability to hide as a bonus action. Sure, rogues can do that at Rogue 2, but we're not going to be there for a while, so that's nice. At level 5, we would be a Ranger 4, and that means we get our first feat, and we are 100% increasing our dexterity here as it improves everything that we're trying to do, from utility to damage to survivability, initiative, everything. At level 6, we would be a Ranger 5, and that means we get extra attack. So now we will be making 3 attacks on our turn, if we include our bonus action, and 4 on the first round of combat, thanks to Dread ambusher. We also get second level ranger spells here, and gloomstalkers, par for the course, get one of the best second level spells in game for free, misty step, for some nice teleportation. Beyond that, I'm gonna say pick your favorites here. Pass without trace is a really great way to ensure that everyone succeeds on stealth checks if you really need to sneak past some enemies who aren't turning around, but there's not really a lot of standouts to me otherwise. At level 7 though, now that we've got extra attack, it's time to get back to Rogue for some more sneak attack damage and our subclass. So that means we'd be a Rogue 2 and we get Cunning Action. So now we can, yes, not only hide as a bonus action, but also dash or disengage. Always useful. At level 8, we would be a Rogue 3 and that means we get our subclass. And we are going, no, not Thief, but you guessed it, Assassin. So here's the deal with Assassin. They get this feature called Assassinate, right? It tells us that we have advantage on attack rolls if the enemy hasn't gone in combat yet. That's especially awesome for Gloomstalkers like us who get an extra attack on that first round of combat. But the strongest part of Assassinate is that we're also told if an enemy is surprised, our attacks are automatic critical hits. And for those of us with sneak attack, which doubles on a crit, and an extra D8 of damage on that first round, which doubles on a crit, and are probably making four attacks against a surprised enemy, a ton of damage. So let's find a way to do more. Because at level 9, some of you are going to balk at this choice. But I'm making it. I want paladin levels. You might think this is too off course for Asterian, but keep in mind, paladins in D&D don't have to be religious. They can simply swear themselves to like an ideal or a code. What would Asterians be? Vengeance, of course. Vengeance against, minor spoiler here, the one who turned him into a vampire in the first place, right? Now, you, of course, do not have to go this route if you don't want to. If it feels off for you to the concept of the character, just go back to Rogue. Keep scaling that sneak attack damage, among other things. Maybe consider a two-level fighter dip for action surge so that you're getting more automatic critical hits on that opening round of combat, right? But for me, yeah, I want paladin levels here because, I mean, first of all, if I'm being honest, Mixing Ranger and Paladin is just not something you can really do in D&D 5e. In case you didn't know, in that game, to multi-class, you need to meet minimum ability score requirements for both whatever class you're multi-classing into and out of, right? So Rangers need a 13 in both Dexterity and Wisdom, and Paladins need a 13 in both Strength and Charisma. That would leave us with almost no points to put into any ability score. And so we'd be left with like just kind of mediocre across the board scores. But in BG3, no ability score requirements for multiclassing. So I get to fulfill this dream of being a Paladin Ranger. Okay, fine. 
I actually did do this one time, I think it was just one time, on a build for, for D&D, a very early build in my YouTube career, uh, unfortunately named the Assassinator. It did end up being a pretty potent burst damage build, actually, and had a lot of similarities to what I'm making here, come to think of it. But anyways, the real reason that we want Paladin levels, of course, is because on that opening round, all of our attacks are critical hits. And you know what that means. We want Divine Smite. But it's going to take us a couple levels to get there. So first off, at Pally 1, yes, in BG3, we get our subclass, and we are going Oath of Vengeance for sure on Asterion. At this level, that's going to give us Inquisitor's Might, telling us that with a bonus action and a use of our channel Oath, charge, basically the same thing as channel divinity for clerics, right? Resetting on a short rest. We can cause our weapon attacks, or an allies, to do extra damage for two turns equal to our charisma modifier. So we might want to respec at this level to give ourselves a little charisma bump. But then we also get Lay on Hands here for some nice healing, and Divine Sense to give us advantage on attacks against Celestials, Undeads, and Fiends for a couple of rounds at the cost of our bonus action. At level 10, we would be a Paladin 2, and that means we get a second fighting style, and I think I'd probably just take defense here for a little extra AC bump. We don't really need anything else that Paladins offer, and we've already got two weapon fighting from Ranger, so yeah might as well increase our survivability. We also get spells here, and I think I probably take Thunderous Smite above anything for this build. Sure, you could go Bless if no one else is, but Thunderous Smite requires our concentration and a bonus action to cast, but will then do an extra 2d6 of damage on our next weapon attack. And there's no real reason why we couldn't cast it before sneaking in to jump our enemies, right? And thereby give that first attack some extra oomph, especially since it's gonna crit. But yes, the real reason that we're here, like I've said, is for Divine Smite, which we also get at this level, which adds 2d8 radiant damage to our weapon attacks plus 1d8 d8 more for each spell slot higher than first that we spend on it. And yes, for those of us getting critical hits, that radiant damage is going to be doubled. And that is just a ton of damage. Especially because with five levels of ranger and two levels of paladin, we now have three second level spell slots and four first level spell slots. And to put this in perspective, at this level, not accounting for any bonuses that we might be getting from gear. If we were to successfully surprise our enemy, assuming that we spent as many spell slots as we needed to for both Thunderous Smite and then Divine Smite on four attacks, right? On that opening round, we would do 16d6 plus 24d8 plus 16 damage to our target over four attacks for a total of 180 damage on average. That's a lot. Holy cow. <laughs> Screw Asterion, I'm respecting my main PC to this build later tonight. <laughs> so for levels 11 and 12, as for where to end the build, I think you've got a few choices. At level 11, you could respec so that you're a Paladin 5, Ranger 3, Rogue 3. We might as well get extra attack from Paladin as opposed to Ranger, in my opinion, since that would let us grab Paladin 6 and Aura of Protection when we hit level 12, right? But again, maybe that doesn't feel particularly Asterion-like to you. In that case, I'd either just go back to Rogue for those last two levels to scale sneak attack a little bit and get us uncanny dodge, or 
you really wanted to get crazy, grab two levels in Bard or Sorcerer, because since those classes are both full spellcasters, it would let us get more and better spell slots, among other things, for bigger and badder smites. From the editing room, um, had to insert this really quick, and maybe it just goes without saying at this point on my builds especially, but yeah, of course, sure. You could finish the build with two levels of fighter, that would get you action surge, and two more attacks during that opening round that automatically crit. We do have the spell slots, barely, to apply Divine Smite to those two more attacks as well. So that's actually probably the best route to go if you wanted to just blow all of your resources and do as much damage as you possibly could in that first round, but it would definitely leave you fairly resourceless after just a single combat encounter, right? So Sorcerer Bard might be the better route to go if you want to be able to kind of do that at least a couple of times between long rests. So that is my Gloomstalker Avenger Assassin build for Asterion, and that wraps both today's video and this series on optimizing the companions. I hope you guys had fun with it. I hope you get to test them out. I have, and they are awesome. <laughs> I hope you know that I love you. Thank you so much for all that you do. I hope you have a fantastic day and a great week. And if you don't, don't give up. You got this. But I hope that you will stay safe and that you will be kind and that I see you again very soon. But until then, take care. Bye. No, you guys are not getting a song today in the outtakes. I can only do one song a day. It's when I'm setting up my lights. And I already sang it. Sorry. So, for those of you who always get a little uncomfy every time you see me singing, maybe you get kind of a funny feeling in your tummy and you have to avert your eyes, you can relax today. <laughs> People standing outside my office and talking loudly. Scaring the bejeebies out of your allies. Scaring the bejeebies out of your enemies. So yeah, this is much weaker than the D&D, than the D&D, than the ability, than, than, um, than Umbral Sight, as it called in D&D. Oh, I have been recording this video since I was 11 years old.